Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Hey, everyone. I'm Julie Gunlock with the Independent Women's Forum and your host for today's Working for Women podcast. Today, I'm really excited to have a very good friend on, uh, Dr. Jamie Wells. She's a board-certified physician and the director of medicine at the American Council on Science and Health, where she writes about, obviously, medical issues um, and a whole bunch of other things. So, uh, Jamie, it's great to have you on today. Thank you so much. I'm really excited. Well, Jamie, you and I kind of um, work in similar areas. I work a lot on, I write a lot about sort of health and nutrition and wellness, um, but you actually have a medical degree. Um, first of all, <laughs> get, get, yeah, so you're, you're, you're much smarter than me on these issues. Um, oh, if you don't I mind. I consider you having an honorary one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, I hope I never have to, like, treat anyone, but that's fine. Um, uh, let's, uh, first of all, give our viewers just a little bit of information about yourself, a little, like a mini bio, if you don't mind. I am a board-certified physician. I was in practice in New York City for over a decade on staff and faculty at NYU, Langone, Mount Sinai Beth Israel, and St. Vincent's Hospital till that closed, and in private practice for nine years. I transitioned um, to the American Council because I was feeling that a lot of policymakers, there was this ever-widening gap between policy and medical practice, and I felt a lot of policy uh, (laughs) that were being, a lot of the policy that was being put in place was being done by people who never laid their hands on a patient. And so I kind of felt that it was um, my life's work times 10 to get on board and try and narrow that gap somewhat. But I ha- I've had extensive experience. I started my career thinking I wanted to be a brain surgeon, so I started a residency in neurosurgery, wound up switching to pediatrics. So I've had quite an extensive, um, vast experience in the field in many capacities. Well, we are thrilled to have you. Um, with us here today, and I think it's particularly important to have um, someone with a, a background in pediatrics to talk about a particular area within the opioid epidemic um, that, is, frankly, is sort of forgotten, I think, and you, you actually write that, the forgotten children of the opioid epidemic, and this can be found at acsh.org, um, which is the organization where uh, Jamie is the medical director. Um, you know, Jamie, this is something I think, you know, I don't see a lot of media coverage of babies that are born addicted um, to opioids and how this fits in with the greater opioid um, epidemic. Can you talk a little bit first about about that? Um, misperceptions you also write about over the um opioid epidemic, and then sort of what the sort of pediatric field, how they're working with the with this particular demographic of addicted, uh, of you know, babies that, that are born addicted to these, these really strong drugs. Well, I was actually going to say um, one of, which I was so thrilled that you're so invested in this topic, because there's a lot of fear-mongering, there's a panic, uh, when in reality, it's really the illicit substances the opioid epidemic is a misnomer. Opioids can be a whole host of things. There's so many nuances that don't get addressed at all. It's Everything gets conflated. So there's yeah. a perception uh, that pharma is evil, these horrible doctors started everything. And the reality is, is they're based on very a lot of nuggets of truth. And in its entirety, it's extremely complicated and multifactorial. So prescription opioid deaths are not exceeding illicit drug deaths, multi-drug deaths. A lot of times these statistics that we hear about drug overdose 
deaths include heroin, fentanyl, that's not the type of fentanyl that's given to a cancer patient in the hospital, wow. but is given on the street because it's laced with other substances. So it's a really complex issue. Children and the cycle of addiction is barely in the discussion. Families are, you know, the parent-child dyad is a symbiotic relationship. Children mimic what they see. When we, have, we know uh, repeatedly through different studies that adverse childhood experiences, we're talking about extreme toxic stress, like um, abuse, childhood trauma that's not dealt with, uh, wreaks havoc in adulthood. And so there are higher rates of substance abuse in adulthood. So one of the issues that I was actually elated to see some light shed upon was when the first lady mentioned her Be Best campaign. And one of the things that, sadly, because politics has become so vitriolic, was completely, largely ignored last week was neonatal abstinence syndrome. And neonatal abstinence syndrome is one of the um, prongs that the first lady is focusing on in her um, trying to raise awareness of the issues with opioids and children. And neonatal yeah. abstinence syndrome is when um, it's basically a, neon- a newborn suffers withdrawal. When, mo- when pregnant mom is chronically using opioids, when you sever the umbilical cord at birth, there's a, a precipitous withdrawal from the baby of opioids. And that can lead to a tremendous health care burden. That can cause prematurity, um, jitteriness, low birth weight. There are a whole host of things that can happen to infants. And it was not even highlighted in any of the news coverage last week. So that was unfortunate because we've seen that, uh, especially between 2000 and 2012, incident rates for neonatal abstinence syndrome and maternal opioid use have nearly fivefold increased in the United States. So that's one issue. Another issue is the fact that we're seeing increased rates um, in different age brackets, so like a third of the younger children, one through five, a lot of things are through accidental ingestion. Kids are curious, they're tactile, they're stimulated right. by their surroundings. So if they're in the presence of anything, then they'll accidentally ingest it. And because a lot of the illicit substances, the um, heroin, um, methadone, which isn't necessarily illicit, it's acquired legally, but other various forms of opioids, young children are um, accidentally ingesting. And what we're seeing is higher rates of PICU and pe- uh, pediatric intensive care unit admissions for um, exposure to children. Teenagers, the issues are as well with opioids, but it's less from, uh, sometimes it's from accidental ingestion, but we're also seeing higher heroin rates in that population too. So the rates of ch- the hospitalizations that the children have as a result of exposure to opioids um, are pretty significant hospitalizations that require the highest level of, P- of um, hospital care in the okay. intensive care unit. They require mechanical ventilation and they require life-saving measures. So there's that aspect of it, the medical aspect of that, and that causes, you know, tremendous stress, those kinds of things. But a lot of the, you know, adult issues are child issues. And what happens in a family, I would love to see some of the emphasis put on um, family-centric yeah. programs yeah. And, and that kind of thing, because if you don't do that, then we won't succeed in breaking the cycle. Well, I want to talk also, you had mentioned, you know, sort of how things are conflated and how these are very complex issues, which the press often, I mean, I think I think you and I have both had experience with this, reading pieces from a beat reporter who might really not understand the complexity of issues. And so, um, sure. 
you know, and, and might not have an expertise in a particular issue. And so there's, a, I think some of the coverage of these things has, has added to that. Um, but I want to mm-hmm. chat with you too about what we're seeing happening with this idea. Um, I'm seeing a lot of this, you know, you mentioned it earlier in your, in your talk about how, oh, pharmaceutical companies are terrible. You know, I, I think what is not discussed is how these drugs are incredibly helpful for some people who live with chronic pain or who are battling horrible diseases, really maintain some level of a lifestyle. Um, tell me a little bit about opioids themselves. I mean, I, you know, I think right now you hear the word opioid and you just think, it's terrible, right? You never well, hear the good the thing. thing. People, the, the, there's a bit of hysteria, which is really so when people are dying, of course there has to be a seriousness of purpose, but there right. also has to be a step back to have a thoughtful dialogue so that we can reach, you know, tangible solutions. And I think part of that comes back to, you know, nothing, when we go into these zones of this is evil, this is amazing, we're going to succeed in no regard. I mean, pharma has been able to cure hepatitis C, which is vastly different than, I mean, that was oftentimes a death sentence when I started in medical practice. So there's immunotherapy, there's chemotherapy, they've made tremendous strides. Now, do they also do patent gaming and other things like that? Yes, but you have to, you know, approach things from a comprehensive perspective. And part of this, the thing that I don't think people realize is that um, how this all kind of began, and, and unfortunately what we're realizing when we restrict these things is that people just substitute one for the other because there's a certain component of addiction that's in the in the process that makes people do that. So like when I started in medical practice, we wrote prescriptions for narcotics on triplicates. They had to be locked up because they would yeah. be stolen and, or diverted. Um, that's They would be shared. This is a big problem in our culture is prescription sharing when things are not prescribed to a person and then they take prescriptions from someone else or they, you know, share them with one another. And, and that's really misguided and it happens all the time. Um, right. And so one of people would doctor shop. That was a problem at the time. Yes. That's what led to the National Drug Monitoring Program because people wouldn't be as necessarily able to game the system. Were there some pill mills? Yes. But one of the yes. issues in terms of pharma that you're talking about is OxyContin was, came on the market in the, in the 90s. And really pain medications and things were used specifically for cancer, acute or subacute injury, end-of-life palliative care issues for shorter term. And actually, all the data at that time showed that patients on, with patient-controlled analgesia, like PCA pumps, um, those kinds of things, patients who have illnesses like that tend to underdose themselves. They tended yes, not yes. to max out on those doses. But then, um, you know, there uh, there's some truth to how they marketed opioids as being not as addictive as they were, but compound that by the pain movement became add pain as a fifth vital sign in the 2000s, hospital oh, reimbursements. Right. There, were, there were perverse incentives with Medicare and things for patient satisfaction scores, and pain medication started to be given outside of the realm of those to non-cancer patients. And there is inconsistency with practice. Dentists used to give it left and right. You know, ophthalmologists right. don't tend to prescribe opioids. So you have to look at what particular fields where you can make inroads in better training in terms of how you yeah. prescribe these things. And then there was such um, pushback because Oxycontin was being abused because it could easily be crushed, snorted, and injected, which sure. is, I will tell you, no way, no way a doctor would ever recommend taking Oxycontin. Right. So, then what, so then what happened was... 
there was big pressure by the company in 2010 to reformulate to an abuse deterrent form of OxyContin. And what happened was, which, oh, again, a lot of these things are well-intended, but sometimes well-intended caused an outcome that was really catastrophic because when they reformulated that, it, it what it meant to be abuse deterrent was when you crushed it, it would congeal, so it was harder to snort or inject. So what happened was people didn't, people jumped to heroin, and heroin and street drugs became uh, precipitously increased. It's just kind of like with the Sudafed, getting rid of Sudafed, now methamphetamine, we're not being able to purchase over-the-counter Sudafed all the time, led to increases in methamphetamine. So there are very bright people who will work around and adapt to what the changing restrictions are. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try things and do them, but one of the problems in reformulating it was we actually, it hastened the escalation for some into the realm of heroin, which is going to be way more rapidly acting. And then you're trusting a, a drug dealer for quality control right. measures, which is never a good thing. And that's what we're seeing now in terms of the high potency of fentanyl on the street. Laced, it, it's a lot of the heroin is being laced with fentanyl or you're getting it replaced with fentanyl. And that's why, um, you know, well, yeah, it can, and, it can and, be and, so and catastrophic. As, and as you said, I mean, there has also been this idea that, okay, opioids and pain management is somehow now bad. And so people are not getting what they need. So they're turning to illicit drugs. They're turning to, you know, some guy on the street and then they're, they're having, uh, you know, uh, they're overdosing. So I think that, you know, some uh, people need to understand that the alarmism around our, uh, yeah, I get it. There's a serious problem, but Mm -hmm. some of the alarmism is also exacerbating the problem. Um, And, and, and really I think harming those who need these drugs the most The other thing I'd like to just touch on uh, before we finish up is one of the things also sort of adding on to this, this sort of misunderstanding of of what I'm not denying that we have a a crisis in this country of opioid addiction and opioid um, overdose. But I think, again, one of the unfortunate things we're also seeing is the activist uh, sort of activist organizations um, seeing a real opportunity here. And we know that they never let an opportunity go to waste. And what we're seeing now is groups um, and obviously trial lawyers encouraging cities and municipalities um, around the nation to actually jump onto these these, um, lawsuits against pharmaceutical companies. Literally, these lawsuits say that pharmaceutical companies are to blame for um, for the opioid addiction crisis, a, a charge I find so insane. Anybody who and I, you know, I, again, I'm not a medical doctor, but I know a little bit about this crisis and what, what you know from a pub, from a public policy standpoint. This this issue is so complicated, which I think you've done a very good job of, of laying out right now. We've talked about many areas of this Thank problem. You. It is very complicated, and to blame yeah. it on one thing, and that is a pharmaceutical company. Which let's not forget. These pharmaceutical companies have given us things like vaccines, right? They've given us things like medicines that make cancer treatments bearable. They've given us many cancer treatments. So, I mean, like all across the board, um, you know, we're a healthier population. We're living longer. We're living those la- those years healthier. And a lot of that is because of the innovation of these pharmaceutical companies. Have you heard about these lawsuits? And what's your thoughts on it? I've heard about the. I have heard about the lawsuits, and um, I just I, I always question what is that going to do for anything. You know, some right. of that is based on two decades ago, which isn't really the standard fare today. Um, and in terms of, you know, when you, cancer patients and that kind of population, 
most people who are med- medicine naive, meaning that they haven't been exposed to medication, have no tolerance per se, they don't like the, you know, the pain medications will reduce the pain, but they may bring a altered euphoria or a, a decreased sensorium or something that they just, they tend to want to get off them as quickly as possible. So they do tremendous things when they're appropriately applied. And I certainly don't think there's anything wrong with re-educating, but I think we have yeah. to approach this certainly in a twofold fashion. How do we rehab and get help to those who are addicted? And how do we stop new addictions and also set up the use for future success when they're in the middle of that kind of extreme childhood situation? Um, the, and the, the parts that I would focus the energy and tackle, because I'm sure these states that cost a ton of money to prosecute or fine, you know, they've already been subjected to a ton, tons of fines. I can't speak to the legal aspect of things, but I'd much rather that those funds be diverted to say, you know, one of the biggest issues is people can't have access to rehab. People right. um, get rehab, but then they reenter their communities. So we yeah. need to do things better than dropping people. When you take people away from their stressors, treat their withdrawal symptoms, that kind of thing, then put them back into the world very quickly after, that's not a recipe for long-term success, which should be well, everybody's and I think, goal. I think what you, you mentioned there, too, is like these lawsuits really distract from programs that could actually help. These lawsuits um, distract from more innovations that could be made within the pharmaceutical industry to develop drugs that, you know, perhaps don't act as opioid, you know, it's still really pain. There's just a lot of medical research out there that has to be done. And it's, it's, um, and, and these lawsuits sort of, sort of take resources away from product innovation. And, and that's, that's, I think that's another very uh, sad uh, sort of result of those well, that's very true. And I think as we've learned with other conditions that national policies oftentimes don't reduce disease burden. And we're seeing that there is a different, there, there's not necessarily a correlation with those states that have higher um, prescriptions and necessarily higher death rates. So it's yeah. very county level dependent and yeah. things should be targeted just like they should be for cirrhosis of the liver or for diabetes or things like right. that. When you paint right. with a wide brush, you tend not to make the most judicious use of the limited resources that we do have. Right. So right. it's a complex issue. It's not solved by one thing, but um, I, I certainly have uh, faith that the next thing will come about. There always will be the next thing. Um, but I think in a re-education of, of our culture about the differences, I mean, people need to get out of their head that if they have one prescribed under an appropriate medical condition situation pill, they're not going to become an addict. And, um, you know, th- there has to be good partnership with the physician and the physician has to know their history and things like that. But hysteria never, hysteria breeds hysteria. It never, you know, calm kind of infects calm. <laughs> you know? That's absolutely so, yeah, that's that's um, that's absolutely true. Um, look, uh, Dr. Wells, I, I can't thank you enough for being on with us. Um, uh, you are just a tremendous guest, and you do great work at the American Council on Science and Health. Just uh, in closing, if you could just tell our listeners where all of your writing can be find, found and maybe give um, the website for your organization. Um, the name of the organization is acsh.org, is the website. It's the American Council on Science and Health. And if you just look under our team at acsh.org, you'll find my name, Jamie Wells, MP, and you can go to my page and find all of the articles that I've written in the last two years. 
Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at JamieWellsMD, J-A-M-I-E-W-E-L-L-S-M-D. Again, Dr. Wells, you are the best. Thank you so much for you're this. You're the best. Um, very- <laughs> the best no, you're the best. Anyway, I win. It's my podcast. Um, you are great. Uh, we'll have you on again soon. I think there's, this is a, a great starting point, but there's a ton of issues that we could talk about. We should make this a regular thing. And uh, thank I you all. Too. Oh, good, good. Well, um, thank you all to the listeners. Um, this has been another edition of the Working for Women podcast. Please be sure to rate this podcast and check us, uh, check out more podcasts at IWF.org. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by IWF.org for similar content.